according to Luke 18, part 3, spoken by Pastor Kevin Swanson. So we're continuing our journey through this uh, biography of the life of Jesus Christ as written by this man, Luke. Uh, Two weeks ago, we started chapter 18. Today, we're going to finish chapter 18. And in chapter 18, we see that Jesus and his followers are on the move. They are headed towards Jerusalem. Jesus has made this abundantly clear more than once, comes up again in the passage today. And Jesus knows that in Jerusalem, the cross is what awaits him. In essence, he's a man condemned. He knows that part of the reason that he was sent by his father to this earth was to give his life for all of us. And he he knows that is going to happen in Jerusalem just a few weeks ahead. But what we see in chapter 18 is that Jesus essentially does not get distracted by this fact. I don't know how I would be if I knew that the date of my death was coming up and it was on the calendar. Jesus continues to see the individual He continues to meet the need of the person in front of him. He continues to dispense truth to people as if nothing was going to happen. Jesus is that focused on the mission that God has given him to do. Two weeks ago, if you were here, uh, Pastor Doug started us into chapter 18, and we can summarize that message with three simple words, persist in prayer. Persist in prayer. If you can make that one of your goals for 2018, you're off to a great start. And Jesus goes to great lengths to demonstrate why it's so important for us to be persistent in our prayer. Last week, Pastor Peter had the middle section of Luke chapter 18. And we can summarize that message in three words. Grow in humility. Grow in humility. Now, if that sounds counterintuitive to you, it sort of is. Because the word growth, we usually think of upward. We think of gaining, achieving, succeeding, going higher. And then when we hear the word humility, we think of of, of submission, of of going down, of, of humbling ourselves. But the two are not mutually exclusive. Humility is something we need to focus on. We need to grow in. Humility does not come natural to any of us. As we'll see in the passage today, something quite different comes natural to all of us. Persist in prayer, church. Grow in humility. And today, we can summarize this message also in three words. I'm going to tell you the three words, but I'm going to ask you to please not get up and walk out thinking you've got the whole message in those three words. Stick with me. Make the ask. Make the ask. Now, you may think, Pastor Kevin, that sounds selfish. That sounds self-serving. Stick with me. You're going to find that it is just the opposite. It's just the opposite. And in two different scenes in this passage today, we're going to see what happens when people are willing to make the ask and they refuse to make the ask. And those who refuse to make the ask are leaving all kinds of good things on the table that Jesus has for them. And those who are willing to make the ask receives blessings beyond probably what they even imagined. So, church, today we're going to learn how to make the ask. So let's just go right to the passage today. We're in Luke chapter 18. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. You can follow along on the screen. I'm going to start reading in verse 31. Go down through verse 43. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, 
We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God, and all the people saw it, and they also praised God. Metro, this is the word of the Lord for us today. Whenever we look in Scripture and we see something repeated, in this case three times, we need to pay attention. We need to be alert to what is going on. And when Jesus talks to his disciples here in this first scene and tells them what's going to happen in Jerusalem, he's repeating what he has already told them twice in the Gospel of Luke. In this particular instance, Jesus goes into the greatest detail. Luke tells us he calls the disciples aside. He he brings them out of the mainstream. And in essence, he says, look me in the eyes. Read my lips. We're going to Jerusalem. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we know you told us that. And I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. What? That's That's not our plan. It's not what we're thinking. And I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be flogged, and I'm going to be spit upon, and I'm going to be tortured, Jesus says, and they're going to kill me. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Luke records for us the response of the disciples in verse 34, where he writes, The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. Now, I don't know how that phrase strikes you, its meaning was hidden from them, but it troubles me. And I read that passage as I was preparing for this message, and that kept jumping out at me. Why would Jesus be telling them something over and over again and then turn around and blocking them from hearing it? Why would Jesus keep the meaning hidden from them if they were supposed to be responsible for the truth that Jesus was sharing with them? And, and, I, and I read it, and I reread it, and I prayed over it, and I read it some more, and it just wasn't coming. So I turned to the commentaries. Let the experts tell me. Where are the Bible scholars here? So I started reading what the commentaries had to say about it. It was inconclusive. I was as confused after as I was before. So finally, in desperation, I took advantage of my real estate in the metro office. If you've been in my office, you know that on one side of me is Pastor David's office, and on the other side is Pastor Peter's office. So so I got together with those two guys, and I read the verse to them, and I said, I don't understand this. Why is God blocking them from understanding the meaning of this message? And here's what Pastor David had to say. He said the disciples had a completely different idea 
of what the Messiah, the Savior, the Rescuer that was promised in the Old Testament, a completely different idea of what this Messiah would be than what Jesus was offering. They were looking for a political, military Messiah, Savior that would come in and run the Romans out and return Israel as a nation to its past glories. And Pastor David said that the disciples themselves were the ones that were blocking. That they were not allowing themselves to even consider any other truth other than the truth that they believed. And they were wrong. They themselves were the ones that were keeping them from understanding the truth. And Pastor David said that God reveals truth to those that are open to his truth. And the disciples weren't open to this truth. This is not a truth that they wanted anything to do with. Pastor Peter went on to say that in essence, the disciples were on a journey here. They hadn't arrived at their destination yet. And until the resurrection, until Jesus resurrected from the dead, that the disciples were not truly saved yet. I thought, well, that makes sense because our salvation has everything to do with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that hadn't happened yet. So the disciples were kind of like people in the middle. They were stuck in this this in-between place right then. They were not willing to hear any other truth, and they weren't at the point yet where they could fully grasp what Jesus was talking about. What's interesting to me is that Jesus is so patient with them. He doesn't call them out. He doesn't say, I've told you this three times already, and you still don't get it. I'm getting new disciples. No, no. He's patient with them. He keeps telling them the truth over and over again because he knows the day will come when they will look back on it and they'll say, oh, that's what Jesus was talking about. Oh, now we get it. I don't know if any of you have dealt with aging parent issues or not. Uh, My mother, when she was still living, um, was getting on in years and she was still driving her car. And uh, both my sister and I felt like this was not a good idea. And so when we had interaction with my mom or if one of us visited or talked to her on the phone, we'd say, Mom, have you finally decided to quit? And she was like this. She's like, I'm fine. I'm safe. I don't need to stop driving my car. All my friends say I should keep driving. That's because none of them could drive. (laughs) And, And she'd say things like, okay, okay, I won't drive on the freeway anymore. I said, well, that's good, but people get hurt in town in car accidents. She'll say, I won't drive at night anymore. Well, how many accidents happen in the daytime, Mom? Come on. And so one day my sister and I were talking on the phone, and my sister said to me, hey, that's too bad about that, that car accident Mom got into. And I said, yeah, it's too bad. But, you know, thankfully it was minor. She got the car fixed, and nobody got hurt. That's the important thing. And as my sister and I started chatting about this, it became apparent to us that my sister was talking about one car accident, and I was talking about a completely different car accident. My mom had chosen to reveal one to my sister and another to me. I don't know if she thought we didn't talk to each other or, or what, so it's like, okay, we got to call time out on this one. So the next time I was there, I, I talked with my mom, and I had the conversation again, and I, there was a real softening in her that had not been there before. And she finally came to the point, she said, yeah, I realize I should, not, I should not be doing this anymore. And what happened was she was able to, in her mind, go back to what my sister and I had been encouraging her with for several months that she'd been so resistant to, 
And now she kind of saw the thread there. Hey, you guys really love me, don't you? You want to protect me. You want what's best for me, don't you? Yeah, we really do. And she gave up driving. That's what Jesus is doing here. Even though he's not getting the response that he would like, he's going to keep dispensing truth, knowing that the day will come when they will get it. Now, before we end this first little scene here with Jesus and the disciples, I want to point out one more thing to you. And that's just this. The disciples didn't ask what Je- they didn't understand what Jesus was saying, but neither did they ask him for clarification. And if you're familiar with the New Testament of the Gospels, many times Jesus will say something or tell something, and the disciples will come to him and ask him about it afterwards. Jesus, what did you mean when you said that? And he gladly shared with them. They didn't do that in this instance. They didn't do that. In Mark chapter 9, verse 32, Mark records this exact same instance. Here's what he says. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They were fearful for some reason, afraid of looking ignorant, afraid that maybe Jesus was telling the truth. For whatever reason, they let fear drive them, and they didn't make the ask, and that condemned them to live in their ignorance going forward. They had the choice, and they chose not to make the ask. Now, that leads us into the second scene in the passage today, where Luke tells us, that Jesus and his followers are traveling along the road by the town of Jericho, and there is a blind man sitting beside the road begging. Now, I don't know if you've had much interaction with blind people in your life. I haven't sought it out, but I've actually had significant relationship with two different blind men uh, in the course of my adult life. The first one was a guy by the name of John Kepley, who a mutual friend introduced me to when I was living up in the hills of Tennessee in a small mountain community. And and Mr. John Kepley lived at the end of a very steep driveway in a little trailer all by himself, and so I got to meet this guy. And that began a two-year relationship between John and myself that actually lasted until until John passed away. He was quite elderly. Uh, And John physically had no sight, but he had all kinds of other things to sort of compensate for it. He's very interesting, fascinating to talk to. I learned a ton of things just by spending time with John and talking to him. And so I go visit him once or twice a week and take him grocery shopping and different things. And one day John said to me, I need a new lawnmower, Kevin. What's a blind man need a lawnmower for? Um, But he had a kid in the neighborhood who came and mowed his grass and the lawnmower had died. So he, he needed a new one. He said, I want you to take me to Walmart. And I said, okay. And in John's mind, Walmart had everything. You know, I mean, he was blind. He couldn't see. But he just thought there was nothing you couldn't get at Walmart. And he had a picture in his mind of a very specific lawnmower. So we went to Walmart, and we went down the aisle, and I walked down lawnmower by lawnmower, explaining each one to John, telling him about the features and the price, and no, that's not it. No, that's not it. And the more we went, the more frustrated John got, because he was convinced it was there. I don't know if he thought I was holding out on him or what. And in his frustration, John did something he'd never, I'd never seen him do before. He stood in the middle of the aisle at Walmart. He kind of tipped his head back a little bit, and he started yelling. And he was going, we need a little help over here in the lawnmower aisle. And I looked at John. I'm going, John, shh. I'll find somebody. I'll find somebody. No, 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 no. He was not going to be put off. He just yelled louder. He had a strong voice. I said we need some. 
and, and customers started looking at us. And finally, a store clerk stuck his head around the end of the aisle, and his eyes were like saucers, like, what's going on over there? So I motioned for this guy, come, 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 please. And I explained quickly what was going on. I said, help this man out here. Convince him that you don't have the lawnmower he needs. But what I learned about John was that he knew how to ask, and he wasn't going to be put off. If he didn't get what he needed, he'd just ask a little bit louder. I kept that in mind on future shopping trips with John. I invited him to come to our church to visit, which he gladly accepted because he was kind of lonely, living all by himself. And if someone would pick him up, he would be there every single Sunday. And he always sat in the same spot, back row, aisle seat, left-hand side. And I noticed that he always sat alone. And I noticed that most people at church were uncomfortable greeting John or interacting with him. They just really didn't know how. It was awkward. And so John spent most of his time there at church, kind of isolated, kind of shunned by the rest of the congregation, which made me sad, which made me sad. But we see that in this same story today, this man who we find sitting beside the roadside begging, that he too is somebody that is shunned by his community. And not only is he shunned by his community, but his community kind of talks down at him. They sort of trash talk him, which was not uncommon in that day. If somebody had a, a situation like being blind, people just naturally assumed, oh, this person has committed a terrible sin, and that's why they're suffering the way that they are. In Luke here, Luke does not name this man Bartimaeus. I believe that Luke is being kind by not doing so, because in the gospel of Mark, we see he is named. Mark says this blind man's name was Bartimaeus. Now, I've always understood before that, that bar means son of, which is true, and that Timaeus was his father's name. So his son of Timaeus, bar Timaeus. I'd always assumed that was true. But recently, I read uh, Kenneth Bailey, who's one of the most prominent biblical scholars, historian, linguists, cultural experts in this time, and he says it's highly unlikely that that was really this man's name. So I was intrigued, and so I read on. And what he said was that Timaeus wasn't somebody's name, that Timaeus meant unclean or filth. And I thought, oh, man, no mother ever names their kid filth. So this guy wouldn't be the son of filth, of his father's name being filth, no. And Bailey went on to say that what Bartimaeus was, was the degrading nickname that the people in town had given to this man. Why did they choose that name? Well, we just read in the passage that he was sitting beside the road begging. And in those days, roads were just dirt tracks, and everything went down them. Shepherds drove their sheep and their goats down. Cattle would walk down, horses, donkeys, and they would all be doing their thing in the road, and nobody was cleaning the road up. And so Bartimaeus, to earn his living, to go be where the people were, he ended up sitting in the filth beside the road doing his begging so that he could survive. And so the people gave him this nickname, Son of it's not just what they called him behind his back. It's how they addressed him. Bartimaeus, son of filth. If you want to put that in our context today, 
That'd be like you or me walking down the street in Manhattan and seeing a, a, a crippled person sitting beside the sidewalk there with a little tin can begging for money. And as we walk by, we kick dirt on him and say, get out of my way, shithead. I offended some of you when I said that. But you can only imagine how offensive it was to Bartimaeus day in and day out to be referred to as the son of filth. The message that his community gave to him was that you don't matter. Your needs aren't important. You embarrass us. We wish you weren't here. But what we see in this man is that he knew his needs were important. He knew that he did matter. And in spite of the trash talk, and in spite of the people in his community trying to keep him quiet and keep him out of sight, he just yelled louder when he knew that Jesus was coming by and there was a chance for him to meet Jesus. I want to just put a brief parenthesis in this message here. We'll get right back to that in just a moment. But I'd just like to share something with you. And that is that this blind man is what we would call today in our culture a man with special needs, with special needs. And just like the crowds of that day determined that the blind man's needs were unimportant, often people in our society today with special needs get pushed to the margins. They get kept out of sight. And the message that we send to them by doing so is that your needs don't matter or they don't matter as much as the rest of us. The crowd in that day could have been the voice for the voiceless. The crowd that day could have facilitated this man getting to Jesus, getting to somebody who could actually help him. But instead, the crowd were the ones that kept Bartimaeus down. He was an embarrassment to them. We want him to be out of sight. We want him to be quiet. Your leaders here at Metro believe that God has called us as the family of God to adopt a very different attitude and practice towards people with special needs in our community. You may not know this, but right now, today, in every grade level in our student ministries here from nursery through high school, we have special needs students in there. And we only want this to expand. That's why we've promoted Pastor Shirley Yu into the position of pastor of special needs here at Metro. And Julie, or Shirley and her embryonic core team are putting together this ministry. And it will be presented to us sooner rather than later. But if this is something God has put on your heart, if you've got a heart for people with special needs, seek out Pastor Shirley. Talk to her. Let her know. She'd love to know who are the people here at Metro that can be her advocates and allies in this new ministry. So for the rest of this sermon, I'm going to try very hard not to call this man the blind man. I don't want to define him by his handicap. His, his identity is not in his blindness. His identity is that he is a man with special needs, made in the image of God, and very, very dear to Jesus Christ. 
So getting back to our passage, let's picture Jesus and his disciples, and they're walking along this road here, and there's a crowd of people with them, and it's noisy, and there's this, there's this yelling coming from off stage of this man who's saying, have mercy on me, son of David, and the people are trying to shut him up. And in verse 40 of Luke chapter 18, Luke uses two words that completely change the trajectory of this whole story. He simply says, Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. The crowd wanted to keep moving, but Jesus stopped. The crowd's message for this man was, you don't matter. Jesus' message when he stopped was, you just became my highest priority. You matter to me a lot. The man responded, he came near to where Jesus was. This man who, who was used to being yelled at and told to shut up was invited into a conversation with the Son of God because Jesus stopped. And as Jesus listened to this man's story, he gave this man dignity. Luke records the end result of this for us. At the end of the passage, the man was healed. He, he, re, he received his sight that day. Huge transformation in his life. But Luke doesn't stop there. He says that this man then decided to follow Jesus. He became a disciple of Jesus. He joined the crowd traveling along with Jesus. But Luke goes on from that, and he says that this man, he started publicly praising God for what had just happened, unashamedly, publicly praising God. And then finally, Luke says that the people around him now, because of this, started praising God themselves, turned into a worship service. Are you seeing what happened here, church? The, 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 the son of filth, the public embarrassment, just became the worship leader. Are we ready for that here? Are we ready for special needs people to lead us here at Metro? I hope so. I hope so. So what we see in these two scenes is, is this contrast between the disciples of Jesus and this man with special needs. The, dis the disciples had vision. They had physical vision. But in spite of their vision, they were blind to the truth that Jesus was communicating to them. And because they were unwilling to make the ask of Jesus, they continued on in their ignorance. And then, in contrast, we have this man with special needs that, yes, he was physically blind, but in spite of his blindness, he had vision. And he had vision enough to understand that this man, Jesus, was a man of hope. This was a man he needed to meet. He needed to encounter him. So this man was willing to make multiple asks in this passage. There's actually five of them if you count them. Disciples didn't even want to make one ask of Jesus, and they suffered because of it. This man made five asks, and his life was completely transformed. The difference was the willingness to make the ask. So I'd like us now to consider the negative example we see from the disciples that we don't want to follow. And then I want us to consider this man with special needs and what he did, and I want him to be our teacher for the next few moments. I'd like him to teach us what it means to make the ask and how we can and should make the ask. 
So here we go. To receive what God has for you, you need to make the ask, number one, appropriately. Appropriately. Listen to the words of James from James chapter 4, verse 2. James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, if we look at this man, this man Bartimaeus, this man with special needs, he's not asking for anything for his pleasures. He's asking for things for his survival. He's asking appropriately. Jesus meets him at that place. I'm afraid that so often our asks of God are for more, bigger, and better. And it's very easy for us to ask for things that just enrich ourselves. James would say, you have not because you are not asking appropriately. We need to be people who ask appropriately. Number two, we need to be people who ask desperately. Desperately. This man, this man with special needs, his physical and spiritual survival depended on him being willing to make the ask. We encounter him by the road begging for coins from people who pass by. Why? Because he wanted to get rich? No, because he wanted to buy bread for that day because he wanted to live another day. He had no other way of making a living. He was desperate. So he begged for money, the only thing that he could do. He was desperate to encounter Jesus. And even though the townspeople tried to keep him from meeting Jesus, no, 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 he did not give up. He was desperate. He was going to see this man. And then finally, when Jesus asked him, what is it you want me to do for you? He could have easily just said, Jesus, could you like double my income? I would love to get some more coins. Maybe I could buy some meat to go along with my bread every day. Or, or Jesus, how about a bench? I'd love to get up out of the filth on the side of the road. Or maybe a little shade over my head. It can get pretty hot out here at times. No, no, no. He went right to the big ask. He was desperate. I want my sight, Jesus. I want to be able to see. And I want you to note something here, church. This man didn't just make his asks to God. He made his ask to God and to people, and both of them were appropriate. He was desperate. He had no problem asking people. He had no problem asking God. Church, sometimes our survival as well depends on us being willing to make the ask. Sometimes we're as desperate as this man is, and God did not design us to figure all this stuff out on our own. He put us in community. He gave us himself as well. Let me give a couple examples. Some of us are drowning in debt right now. Some of us have our credit cards maxed out. We've got loans, student loans, whatever. We have no idea how we're going to get out of a financial crisis. And, and so what we do is we ask God for more money. God, give me a raise. God, give me a job that pays more. God, give me, help me win the lottery without buying a ticket. You know, we, we've got all these asks. We think more income is the thing that we need. But how about if the ask changed, was more appropriate. God, would you give me wisdom to know how to manage the resources that you've already entrusted me? How about that instead of just asking for more money? I did uh, premarital counseling for a couple a few years ago uh, who both just graduated college. They both had professional degrees and they both had a boatload of student debt and they got married and they were looking at probably eight to 12 years 
to pay off their student loans. And to them, that felt like carrying a big rock around on their back. It was going to keep them from going the direction they wanted to go. It was going to keep them from being obedient to what God had for them. And so they started asking. And they asked God for wisdom to try to figure, how can we get out from under these loans as quick as possible? They started talking to other people that were a little further down the road and got some good input from people. And in the end, this couple decided, we are going to declare war on our student loans. And we are going to live our lives in a way that, that says, as fast as we possibly can, we are going to get these loans taken care of. Now, that meant they didn't buy a lot of things they would have liked to have bought in, in, in that season of their life. It probably meant they ate more rice and beans than they were used to. I don't know. But in the end, church, in 18 months, they had paid everything off. They were 100% debt-free. Now, see, I think, I, I think that God honored the fact that they made the ask and they made a decision in faith that they were going to kill this thing. I don't think they thought it was going to happen in 18 months, but it did. And now they were free to go and live the life that God had for them. Ask God for wisdom. Ask others for some good input in your life. Some of you are in depleting relationships right now. You're in a relationship that was supposed to be life-giving, and it's turned out to be the exact opposite. It's sucking life out of you. And the ask in a situation like that is generally, God, fix this woman. Fix her. Certainly not me. Fix this man. Fix this person. Fix this coworker, this sibling. How about if the ask became, God, show me what my part is in this unhealthy relationship. Show me what I'm responsible for, for, for. Because that's the only thing that we can do anything about is us, not the other person. Ask God. Ask others desperately. Number three, we need to ask boldly. Make the ask boldly. We see that in this man with special needs that in spite of the opposition, he just turned up the volume and kept right on asking. He didn't waver. He made the bold ask and he got his eyesight out of the deal. What is your bold ask today, church? What is that thing that is so much bigger than you, that's so far beyond your ability to do anything about, that you ask God for? I have three family members who don't know Jesus. I'm not Jesus. I can't save them. But I can make the bold ask that God would do the work in their lives, that God would open their eyes, that they would understand what God has offered to them. So I boldly return to God, asking him for their salvation. I have a bold ask for Metro Community Church and Metro Community Center. It's that God would give us a home here in Inglewood someday, sooner rather than later. And, and it's not because I don't want to set chairs up anymore. That, that's not what it is. We can set chairs up until Jesus comes back, and we're okay. We're good with that. But I make this ask because I believe we need a place where more people can be exposed to Jesus. And I make this ask because I believe... That Englewood needs a place where people that are living on the margins, the people that are under-resourced in this community can receive things so that they can thrive. I believe that. And it's a God-sized ask. Now, God's going to probably ask us to participate in it in one way or another. But it's my bold ask. What's yours? What's yours? Number four, we ask humbly. We make the ask humbly. Pastor Peter last week told us that we should 
grow in humility. He showed us in the scriptures where humility is a virtue. Let me just tell you something. I don't know if this is good news or not, but making the ask is a sign of weakness. Making the ask is admitting that we can't do it on our own. Making the ask means I don't have what it takes to meet this need any more than this man who couldn't see could fix his own eyes. He was completely helpless. We are as well. Two weeks ago, Pastor Doug started us off in Luke chapter 18, and Jesus tells a little parable about two men who went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a highly respected, visible religious leader. And Jesus said he went into the temple, and he stood there, and he prayed out loud before everybody so they could hear him, which is good because it got written down, so we know what he prayed. Do you remember what his ask was? Do you remember what the Pharisee asked for when he prayed out loud to God in the temple? I don't remember either because he didn't ask for anything. He had no asks. His message to God was, I'm good. I'm a complete package. I'm a self-made man. I'm okay. I don't need anything. Okay, this is the opposite of humility, right? This man was suffering from pride. The other man we're told as a hated tax collector, he wouldn't even look up to God. And his prayer was only an ask. He asked for God to have mercy on him. And Jesus says, that man went away justified, not this great religious leader who had no needs. Church, pride is a roadblock in our relationship with Jesus and others. The disciples refused to ask Jesus for clarification because of their pride. And they got stuck in their ignorance. I told you that when I started working on this sermon, that I got stuck on this one passage. And I couldn't figure out what it meant. And I did everything I could possibly think of before I finally checked in with my colleagues to see what they had to say. Why? I wanted to figure it out on my own. I wanted to come up with the answer. I didn't want to have to admit to Pastor Peter and Pastor David that I didn't understand this passage. My pride kept me from getting the information that was available sooner. Should have humbled myself a whole lot easier. It would have made sermon prep a whole lot simpler to just say, I need help. We ask humbly. And then finally, we ask continuously. We ask continuously. Pastor Doug's message, uh, Jesus tells a story about a woman who asked for justice, and she didn't get it. So she asked again, and she didn't get it. And she kept on asking until she finally received justice. In this passage today, we see a man who yelled out for Jesus, and the people told him to be quiet, and he yelled louder, and the people told him to be quiet. And he asked continuously until he finally got his audience with Jesus, and it changed his life. Continuously, unashamedly asking is held up in Scripture as a virtue. And finally, we ask with faith. We ask with faith. Jesus said to this man, your faith has healed you. Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Now, how did Jesus know this man had faith? Well, I would suggest it's because this man asked appropriately and desperately and boldly and humbly and continuously and those very things became the indication that he had faith in his heart that this man, Jesus, could do something about it. Jesus responded to his faith, and the man was healed. So in conclusion, let me just say that Luke gives us 
two examples here in this passage of making the ask. The first one is a negative example where we see the disciples refusing to make the ask for whatever reason, and they left empty-handed. The, the contrast is this man with special needs who embraced making the ask. He was an expert at making the ask, and he left with his life completely transformed. Luke also shows us that our asks need to include both to God and also to our community. God has put us in community by design. It's not just us and God. It's us and God, and it's us and God's people. And the ask needs to go both directions. And finally, Luke shows us that pride will keep us from asking and therefore from receiving. And humility opens the door to us receiving what God has for us. Metro, my hope is that 2018 will be the year that more of us get comfortable with making the ask, the big ask, the bold ask, the continuous ask, so that we as individuals and as a church family will miss out on nothing that God has for us. Can we commit to that together? Let's pray.